I quit. Not really. <laughs> Imagine and think back to times, if you've ever had the opportunity to say that, those words, I quit. There's a freeing sense to those words sometimes. One of my best memories from the summer of 1998 was receiving a package in the mail from my granddad. I was in Togo, West Africa, and the parasite of malaria was feeding on my blood cells and draining my very life. The trip wasn't very well organized. I was sick. I had fever and chills. Nothing seemed to be going right. And I got this package from my granddad, and in it was a mixtape that I could play on my Walkman that I had with me. And one of the songs on that mixtape was by a guy named David Allen Coe. I can't recommend all of his songs. But this one had the, the chorus, which went like this. Take this job and shove it. <laughs> I ain't working here no more. <laughs> and that's how I felt at that time. I felt like quitting. And as you think about times in your life when you have quit something, one very likely reason is that it's not like you expected. Something has not met your expectations. It's been too difficult. Think about some job that you've done, some sport, some fitness endeavor, something. It was too difficult. It didn't meet your expectations. You didn't like the way it made you feel. It was hard. You weren't prepared for it at all, and you just wanted to be done with it. Just, I quit. Well, many who seem to embrace Christ with joy face the same reality and have ended up saying, I quit. This is not a surprise to us because Jesus taught about this in the parable of the soils. There was some seed which fell among the thorns and it sprouted up with with joy, these people seem to embrace Jesus, and yet there was no root to it, and the cares of this life, the difficulties of this world, choked it out, and it didn't bear fruit. And some people who initially seem to have joy in Christ, even for an extended period of time, after facing some trial or tribulation, some hostility, they end up saying, I quit, and walk away from the faith completely. And brothers and sisters, this is a danger to our lives. We need to be keeping watch over our lives. We need to be guarding our hearts and our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because this world is hostile towards God and the things of God. This is a very serious reality. Even as we affirm the perseverance of the saints, even as we affirm those who are born again can never ultimately and finally fall away, we need to face this reality with seriousness. That the devil and his forces want to, if at all possible, deceive the elect of God. Well, in our passage for this morning, Jesus is preparing his own disciples for this reality. The reality of hostility from the world. There will be hostility. They will face persecutions and trials. And he tells them this so that in the end they won't stumble. You remember our previous passage from last week as Clint came and preached last week. He preached of the love of Christ, of abiding in Christ and His love. 
He preached of abiding in the word of Christ. He preached of bearing much fruit in understanding our complete dependence upon Christ. We might get the impression from that passage that everything's going to be easy. That we'll just dwell in Christ's love, we'll abide in Christ's love, His love will abide in us, and we can just ease through life with no problems. Maybe that's the impression the disciples had after those words. And yet, Jesus' words here remind us, reminded them that this is not the case at all. That we should actually expect something completely different. A difficult life. Trials, hostilities, conflict in our world. I want us to consider this passage in three different headings as we walk through these verses together. And they're concerning this, the world in particular, this sinful realm in which we find ourselves. We'll see the world's hatred, the world's guilt, but also the world's impotence, powerlessness against God and the things of God. First, I want us to notice the world's hatred for Jesus and his disciples. Hostility from the world is expected. We should expect it. Jesus' disciples, he says, you should expect there to be opposition from the world. So the context of abiding in Christ and abiding in the word of Christ is we're in enemy territory. This is, this is why it's so important that we abide in Christ and in his word. The context of abiding in Christ and bearing fruit for his glory is enemy territory. We've seen the, the contrast in the previous passage and this passage from love and hate. We will abide in the love of Christ and yet we will face the hate of the world. Jesus tells his disciples, it is only natural for the world to hate you because they also hated me. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you shouldn't be a surprise to you. If they hate me, they will also hate you. And that's because the world hates that which does not belong to it. The disciples were of the world, he says, but you are not of the world any longer, for I chose you out of the world. He says, this is why the world hates you. You are not of the world. You are of God and of heaven. The disciples were of the world, but Christ chose them out of it. This is, is pointing to Christ's election of his own disciples. Now notice the words Jesus says in verse 20. He says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. You remember the context of these words earlier. He used them to apply them to how they should serve one another. I've washed your feet. You should do the same for one another. A servant is not greater than his master. So if I have done this for you, Jesus says, you should do this for one another. But there's a different application here. He uses the same sort of illustration. This time to say, if, a, if the master is persecuted, why wouldn't the servants be persecuted? Why shouldn't they expect to be persecuted as well? If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. 
If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. And I think we should see that not so much in the, the positive sense, like maybe they will accept my word, but in the negative sense, they rejected my word. And they're going to reject your word as well. They're going to reject you. They're going to persecute you. You are going to face these trials and difficulties. There will be hostility on account of Jesus' name. Ultimately, he gives the reason for it, because they do not know God. This is why the world hates Jesus. This is why the world hates Jesus' disciples because they do not know him who sent Jesus. They do not know God. Ultimately, there will be, between the people of God and the world, a clash of cultures. Two different, radically different cultures coming into contact with one another and creating friction against one another. If you've ever been to another country, you, you, know, you know this illustration. There are different customs, different laws, different rules, different courtesies. You may do something accidentally and totally mess up your friendship with some, someone else because you, you broke the, the cultural norms of another culture. I've heard from uh, Jason Stoddard and Andrea and they're already experiencing some of that friction, some of the different cultures. It, they don't feel at home. It's, a little, it's different in a lot of different areas of their lives. Well, if that's the case within different cultures in our world, and even different cultures within different states in the United States, how much more will that contrast be recognizable between the world and between those who are not of the world? We should expect there to be cultural clashes between those who are of God and those who are of the world. And because of this, Jesus says to his disciples, you should expect there to be hostility. And brothers and sisters, the same principle is true for us. Although it's not a direct application, direct line to us, it is true that we should expect hostility from this world. If not, then we should be at least thoughtful about why that is. If we're not experiencing some sort of cultural friction, if we're not experiencing some sort of hostility, we should consider why is that the case? Maybe we intentionally avoid conflict when it comes to spiritual things because it would be so much easier just to coast. Not make waves, not cause any trouble by acting on our values or speaking of Christ. So we shy away from those things we know would ultimately cause conflict or confrontation. The values of Christ's disciples will conflict with the values of the world. Now we might think mainly in terms of morality, not participating in gossip, Avoiding, refraining sexual immorality, remaining sexually pure. Avoiding drunkenness and uh, an a immoral lifestyle. Avoiding workplace dishonesty and corruption. And yes, all those things should mark the believer. Uh, refraining from sin because we're seeking to live for the glory of God. But I think at the root we have to say 
the differing values of Christ's people versus the differing values of the world all come down to this. We desire, we seek, we strive for Christ to be exalted. And this is where, this is where the root of the conflict will come from. That in all of our, our life, in everything that we do or say or think, behave, we want Christ to be glorified. Nothing pleases us more than to see Christ glorified. Just like you, you think about how in Scripture we're told that we should avoid uh, marriages between unbelievers and believers. Because they have different trajectories, different goals, different aims. There will necessarily come conflict between the two. And in the same way, as we pursue Christ and the kingdom of Christ, we won't be able to help it. It's not like we'll we'll be trying to offend people. We won't be able to help it. There will be conflict. There will be controversy. We don't invite persecution or hostility. It's not something we're seeking out. We expect it, but we don't seek for it. And we have to recognize, Jesus says, it will be on account of my name, on account of Jesus. So this means we're not engaged in conflict and controversy because we're obnoxious or because we're intentionally seeking to to cause a controversy or to make waves. But it is inevitable. We don't invite it and neither do we invent hostility. But as we pursue Christ, we should expect that it will take place. Another line of application. Since we, brothers and sisters, do not face persecution in in the, I think, a, a real sense of the word, we should bear in mind our brothers and sisters all over the world who are facing real persecution. We sh- it should cause us to have a solidarity with them that we would mourn with them, that we would pray for them, that we would even go and seek to somehow relieve their suffering. We are thankful to live in a free society where we can meet here together and proclaim Christ and worship Christ. But perhaps the majority of Christians throughout the world can't do that, at least without some fear. We should keep them in mind, brothers and sisters, regularly. We should expect hostility from the world. The world's hatred for God and the things of God is real, but so is the world's judgment and guilt. It's the next heading for our message. Although the world's opposition to God will be demonstrated in its hostility to God's people, the guilt and the judgment of the world are certain. In other words, it won't... the world's opposition to God and the things of God won't last forever. Now this passage, these words here, don't speak explicitly of judgment and of guilt, but they speak of having sin, the world having sin. And guilt and judgment are, are implied in this. The world's guilt, Jesus says, is demonstrated in a particular way in this. They have received the supreme revelation of God in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And they have rejected it. This is such a clear revelation that Jesus can say, they have seen the Father in Him. You see Jesus, you see the Father in some mysterious way. 
You hear Jesus, you hear the Father. You reject Jesus, you reject the Father. This is why we say that any faith that rejects Christ can't say that they ultimately love God. Because to reject Christ is to reject God. To see Jesus is to see the Father, and to hate Jesus is to hate the Father. What is Jesus saying here about the guilt of the world, the world having sin? He says in verse 22, If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. They would not have had sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates my Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not have sinned, but now they have seen and hated both me and my Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. I think ultimately it is, it is this. Although the world has no excuse already, because God has been clearly revealed in what he has made, the mountains and the ocean and the trees and the, the animals and all things, the moral will within you and me, there's no excuse. And yet, with the supreme revelation of Jesus Christ and his word, there can be no more pretense of an excuse. All of it falls flat. There is no excuse. There is no ignorance. There will be accountability for how the world has heard and seen Jesus Christ fully displayed, and yet they have rejected him. The words and works of Jesus are life and light and truth. They are our life, brothers and sisters, and yet for any who reject him, they are death. They are judgment. The guilt and judgment of this world is certain and just Jesus the I am the 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 creator of the universe is among them and they have in a sense spit in his face rejected their creator imagine a leader who had always treated you kind who had always treated you kindly and had been generous to you and had met all of your needs Maybe you've had a boss like this that was just a, an excellent and kind and generous boss. Imagine a leader who had done all this for you and always taken care of you, and you reject them. You turn your back on him. You spit in his face. You ransack his house and steal all of his possessions. Now, there are rebellions in this world against bad leaders, against corrupt leaders, uprisings where a people will try to overthrow their ruler. And it makes sense, right? You're, you're under oppression, and therefore you want to be out of that oppression. You overthrow this evil and wicked ruler. And yet, in, in the cosmic scenery of things, we have done this with God himself, who has always been kind to us. We have rejected him. We have sought to overthrow him by setting ourselves up on the throne that belongs to him. This is what we have done in our nature. This is what we do naturally. This is what every person does and has done. If, if you're here 
and you're not a believer, you need to consider this. Maybe you're, you're deceived in your belief. Are you of the world? Have you rejected your maker? There is a warning here. Jesus has come and made himself known. This is a warning to you who are here and do not believe. This is a warning to your friends, to relationships you have of people who don't believe in Christ, who haven't embraced Christ. He has revealed himself to them in creation. He has revealed himself to them in the person of Jesus Christ. In the preaching of this sermon now, Jesus is being revealed and we all will be held accountable for how we hear and respond to the message of Jesus. There is a warning here, but there's also a great comfort to the believer. There is a great comfort to the believer in that we will face hostility, but it won't last forever. There will be an accountability for the hostility, the hatred toward God and toward his people. And there's also a, a reason for great joy for the believer in this. Consider who you are, who you've become, what you once were, and the grace you have been given in Christ Jesus. What did, what did Jesus say of his disciples? You were of the world, but you have been chosen out of the world simply by his grace. Not because of anything in you, but by his grace. And this is what fuels our life for the glory of Christ. A heart of gratitude because of what he has done for us. This, this election of his disciples and this, this choosing of God's people. It's not a pick me, pick me sort of scenario. It's not like everybody's lining up at the door asking to get in. Right? It's completely the opposite. It is a mass of humanity running in the opposite direction, away from God, seeking, to, if at all possible, to th get him off of his throne. And in his grace, in his mercy, he reaches down and he scoops up rebels for his glory. This, this was you, brothers and sisters in Christ. You were a rebel against God, and he has chosen you out of the world. Let this cause our hearts to rejoice and to live in gratitude. Another way we can apply this is that this, because of this, because we are not of the world any longer, we've been chosen out of the world, in a sense we participate in the world's things as though we didn't participate in them. We, we all need help with this. We all need a mind shift in this. We participate in the world's things as though we, in a sense, now you, I would have to nuance this, but in a sense as though we were not, we, we're just observers of what's going on. That maybe if you visited another country and you hear about political things going on or you hear about sports things going on, you hear about community things going on, you might find it interesting and you might get engaged, but there's kind of a distance there between you and, and those things because you're not a part of this culture. You're not a part of this, this uh, society, this world. In the same way, we are of another kingdom. We are of the kingdom of Christ. Therefore, that should moderate our passions, in a sense, for the things of this world, for the activities of the world. There will be hostility from the world. 
But the world's judgment is sure. This hostility will not face forever. And there is more good news. Ultimately, the world is impotent against God and God's people. Not only is justice certain for the world because of its hostility towards God and his people, the power of the world is ultimately limited. We might think that a a response to this hostility of the world would be to just hunker down, circle the wagons, let's let's go into protect mode and make sure that we, we just guard ourselves against this hostility. Not according to what Jesus says. He tells us several things which, uh, which point us in the opposite direction. First, the helper will come. You see that in verse 26. When the helper comes, whom I will send you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. The helper, the advocate, the keeper, the strengthener, the one who dwells in those who belong to Jesus will come from the Father, sent from Jesus, and He will bear witness in our hearts of Christ. He will bear witness to you, Jesus tells His disciples. He will come and bear witness to you because we are in ever-increasing need of hearing and receiving words about Christ. He will bear witness and you will be You will bear witness. You will bear witness by the power of the Spirit who is bearing witness. This is the activity in which we are involved in the midst of this hostile world. Bearing witness to the Lord Jesus Christ is the activity with our words, with our deeds, with our motivations, with all that we are. Bearing witness to Jesus is what you're to be about in the face of hostility in persecution, in suffering, in trials, in freedom. You are to bear witness of Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, to what or to whom does your life bear witness? Have you you forgotten the first zeal that you have when you became a Christian and you wanted to tell everyone about Christ? Has that dulled over time? Have you gotten caught up in the things of this world so that you've forgotten your Savior and speaking much of Christ? Speak much of Christ in the church. Speak much of Christ in your neighborhood. Speak much of Christ in the workplace. Speak much of Christ and bear witness to Him for His glory. We are to do so with boldness, with strength, with courage, because it is the Holy Spirit within us which bears witness to us and enables us to bear witness. Jesus tells His disciples what hostility may look like. It may look like banishment from the synagogue, from the religious places of worship. It may look like murder. You may be murdered, Jesus tells his disciples. And those who murder you, they'll think they're offering a service to God. They'll think they're doing a favor to God because they're getting rid of you. But Jesus will preserve his people through and in the face of this sinful and hostile world. See that in verse 1 and following? I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away, to keep you from stumbling, to getting tripped up. I think ultimately is speaking there of falling into sin and falling away from Jesus as a disciple. How will he preserve his people? First, 
through his spirit within them. This is how you're being preserved, brothers and sisters. Through the spirit who indwells you. You have the spirit and you will certainly not fall away. It cannot be. It will not be. He will guard his people as the spirit bears witness to our hearts that we are the children of God. How else is he guarding you? How else is he preserving you? Through his words. I have spoken these things to you so that you will not fall away. The Holy Spirit, he tells us later, will come and remind you of all the things that I've said to you. Now the first line of application in this is that Jesus has done what he said he would do. He preserved these disciples. He preserved them by his Holy Spirit and by his word. They bore witness through the proclamation of the gospel as we read about in the book of Acts. And we have the Holy Scriptures because they were preserved by the Holy Spirit. And then this also indirectly applies to us. He will preserve you by his Holy Spirit and by his word. Devote yourselves to the words of Christ, to hearing them, to speaking them, to embracing them, to believing them. This is your means of perseverance. So we do believe in the perseverance of the saints. We believe that those who are genuine Christians will never fall away. But that doesn't happen without means. It doesn't happen without some way of God keeping you. If you totally ignore the word of Christ every day for the rest of your life, if you avoid gathering with the people of God, you are separating yourself from the means God uses to keep his people. And you may end up falling away, proving that you never were of the faith. So devote yourselves to these things, brothers and sisters, remembering that it is the Holy Spirit who gives you strength. Well, you probably have heard the name Jimmy Valvano, Jimmy V, basketball coach for NC State basketball for quite a few years, probably one of the greatest Cinderella stories in college basketball when they won the, the championship. Well, I don't know of Jimmy V's uh, faith. He, I think he was raised Catholic. I can't speak to, to his faith in Christ. Uh, but he, he knew something uh, of the truth of the Spirit and the truth of life in this world, which is given evidence of in his speech at the ESPYs before he died. It was his don't ever give up speech. He died of cancer. But before he died of cancer, he made this speech at the ESPYs in which he said, cancer cannot take away all of my physical, it, cancer can take away all of my physical abilities. It cannot touch my mind. It cannot touch my heart. It cannot touch my soul. And brothers and sisters, the hatred of this world, the hostility of this world, it can affect us in amazingly terrifying ways. You will face all kinds of sufferings in this life. You will face all kinds of trials. You may even face persecution for the name of Jesus Christ, but ultimately it has no power over you because Jesus Christ has conquered the grave. Let's pray together.